Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 21st, 2012, and my guest is Casey Mulligan of the University of Chicago and the author of The Redistribution Recession, How Labor Market Distortions Contracted the Economy. And that book is the topic of our discussion today. Casey, welcome to Econ Talk. I'm very glad to be invited. Now, there are many different explanations for the recession that began in December 2007 and the unusually poor recovery that followed that. And many of these explanations are macroeconomic in nature, as one would expect, meaning they look at how various aggregates, such as the money supply or aggregate demand or economy-wide interest rates or the level of indebtedness, how did those macroeconomic variables affect the overall health of the economy. Your book, which is a, a very technical work of applied statistics, takes a very different approach. You argue that government policy changed the incentives for people to work and for people to hire workers. It's a much more microeconomic approach about incentives and the impact those incentives had on the outcomes that we then measure in the macroeconomy. Lay out the main argument of the book. Well, the, the main uh, main idea is I, I start start by looking at um, changes in public policy uh, that affect regular families. So I'm not looking at banking policy and things like that. Things affect regular families, um, unemployment insurance program, Medicaid program, uh, food stamp program, other safety net programs that can help people when when their incomes fall or they're out of a job. I looked at the, I looked at those. I looked how they were run before the recession. I looked how they were run during the recession, and, and there were changes, significant changes. Um, and then I tried to quantify that. You know, some of the changes were pretty important; others were more minor. I tried to quantify those things and come up with kind of a total impact of the new government rules on how much help you could get when your income was low or you're out of a job or both. And then I said, okay. Once I have an understanding of how much um, help and incentives change, then I ask, well, when that much help comes along, how much does that affect people's behavior? We economists have studied that second question a long time, and all I do is bring it into the 21st century and say, we have 21st century rule changes here. What about what kind of changes in the labor market should we expect? And the answer was, well, labor market should be depressed. Uh, as a result of those rule changes, um, and I work out how much, and it turns out about half, probably a little more, of the depression of the labor market, you can link directly to these new rules for helping people when they're unemployed or have low incomes. Now, it's not unusual that during a recession, labor markets um, are not very happy, that there's high unemployment rate, that the employment rate the employment rate goes down. Uh, what's startling, I think, about this recession is that the employment population ratio, meaning the the number of people working as a proportion of the entire population, plummeted. That's It was a big recession. It went down a lot, but it has not budged in any significant sense since the recovery officially began in July of 2000, and I think summer of 2009. So for three years... There's been no recovery in that ratio. That's extremely unusual. If you look at the post-war period, almost after almost every, after almost every recession, that number bounces back dramatically, very quickly. In fact, the deeper the recession, the quicker it bounces back. Uh, there's a little bit of a hesitation in the early 1960s um, that is something like we have here, but this is very unusual. So you're suggesting that that failure of that employment number to bounce back, and possibly you're suggesting that the recession itself is this is a result of government policy specifically related to the labor market. So comment on that. I might quibble a little bit about your description. It's true that the employment population ratio hasn't really bounced back, 
But it, absent recession, wherever it came from, there were forces that were pushing that ratio down anyway, like especially the baby boom coming into retirement age. Sure. So I would say that that, that ratio has bounced back partly to where we'd expect it to be, but still it's it's down significantly. Yeah. It continues to be. And we're surprised that it didn't bounce back more. I yeah. think we can agree with that. Yeah, it's pretty flat. And thanks to a lot of help that the government's offered, and not just the government, also I, in the book I look at some private sector help that's there. Thanks to that help, um, people don't suffer as much when they're not employed as they would have if they would have experienced this uh, 10 years ago or five years ago or 15 years ago. And when it's less painful to be without a job, there'll be more people who are without a job. So you're been criticized for implicitly or explicitly saying that unemployment is, is voluntary. You're suggesting that, well, if, if there's not a big enough return to work, because when you go back to work, you lose a lot of these benefits. Um, so you choose not to. And you're suggesting then that, that the really painful aspects of this, uh, recession, where, which saw unemployment reach a little over 10% and stay stubbornly high, now just dropping a little bit under 8% in the last numbers, that that's due to the voluntary choice. That's not due to some stickiness in the labor market, as the Keynesians would suggest. It's not due to um, a failure of aggregate demand to be stimulated sufficiently. You're suggesting that's due to the choices of workers, rational choices that people have given what it costs them to go back to work. Is that is that fair? Um. Yeah, it's a little oversimplified, um, but a primary factor is incentives. For There's a group of the population whose incentives have been severely eroded. Um, as a result of what's happening to that group of the population, that leads to some stickiness, and I discuss this in the book, that why should people accept low-wage jobs when they're getting a better deal when they're not working? So... In maybe normal situations, maybe wages would have fallen or whatever. They're not going to fall when there's more generosity on for, on the unemployment side of things. So I don't disagree with the stickiness. I just don't view it as a, something that came from heaven. It came from public policy. Um, same with the aggregate demand. I, I don't. When you have a group of people who are making the best of a bunch of bad choices, they're presented, which is to be on public assistance. They're going to trim their belts. They're going to spend less. Um, maybe get by with one car instead of two. And so if you're a guy who makes cars, even if you have no access to these safety net programs, you're going to find your labor market is not too good either because your customers have decided to spend less. But why are they spending less? That um, that has to do with the expansion of safety net programs. So the irony here uh, is that the Keynesian view says these safety net programs help repair the economy because it puts spending, it injects spending into the economy. It puts money in the hands of otherwise unemployed people. You're suggesting it's exactly the opposite, that it not only doesn't make things better, it actually makes things worse if you measure it by the labor market. Right. It, it does put money in a group of people's hands. It takes it out of another group of people's hands. And, it, and the net reduction in the economy is actually less spending because you have less work going on. So there's less total income to be spent. Um, and so they're going to people who are going to suffer from that, depending on the industry they work on, work in, they're going to see the drop in the demand for what they make. And they might not appreciate my story, but they don't understand. They need to appreciate, well, why aren't their customers spending? And they got to get the drill down to the bottom of that. You're going to see that safety net expansions are a big part of it. So one thing that's great about this book and the research you've done around it is that there are a lot of explanations uh, that have the general flavor of yours, and I'll mention one, I'll mention a couple, maybe, where somebody says, well, look, we know why such and such happens. It's because there's this effect, and this effect has the right sign. So, for example, I, I've talked a lot on the program and I had guests who talked about the uncertainty, say, that was created by the uh, increase in, in all kinds of activities of the government. And many people have blamed the poor recovery on the uncertainty, the Riskiness then of investing, et cetera. 
but it's generally very difficult to quantify that. And it's hard to show that the riskiness is higher and uncertainty is higher. It's, there's always a lot of uncertainty. So is it really plausible that it causes this problem? It, it's a nice story. It's a, it's what sometimes is called a, a just so story. It's what sometimes is called an ex post narrative. And you could, one could accuse you of that, except that you don't just do that. You go out and try to measure the actual size and magnitudes of these changes to see if they're, if it's plausible. And so doing that is quite challenging econometrically and we probably won't get into the details of that. People who are interested can look at the book. But just to give the reader some of the flavor of that, why don't you talk about what some of these changes in policy are on the safety net and some of the magnitudes so that we can get a feel for whether it really is just back of the envelope wise a reasonable claim okay um well the major <clears throat> one thing that's kind of interesting about what's happened is there's not a single program or a single rule you can point to and give a lot of the blame there was a lot of relatively small changes happening at the same time all in the same direction so if I had to name one, it would still be a minority what was happening. But the name more than the number one. one <laughs> the number one uh, expansion would be the famous or the infamous 99 weeks of unemployment insurance. Normally it's 26 weeks, a half a year, and it went up to almost two years. And that puts a whole bunch of people uh, in a position to receive benefits. They wouldn't have received them otherwise. Um, if they had been unemployed 27 weeks under the old rules, they would have got nothing uh, from that program. And before we lived in this highly charged political atmosphere we seem to be living in, there was a consensus among economists that unemployment compensation increased the unemployment rate and that when those 26 weeks ended, you could see that the rate would go down. Is that a correct summary of the literature before uh, before we are in this recession? I think so. The magnitudes were debated there for sure. Um, but if five years ago, an economist were to stand up and say, uh, I don't think unemployment insurance has any effect on the unemployment rate, uh, that wouldn't have been a credible position. And again, now a lot of people argue the opposite, uh, Nancy Pelosi being one of them. But, but, but actual academic economists as well said, well, unemployment compensation, that puts money in the hands of the poor, that increases spending, that through the Keynesian multiplier leads to greater output, that leads to more hiring, and that way the unemployment rate actually goes down. That You actually have people arguing that now. They, they said that. Um, they don't have models to that effect. Um, I, I'm not aware of a Keynesian model that shows that when you put money into the hands of the poor, that expands demand in any non-trivial way. I mean, maybe at a fourth decimal place or something like that. But they have a higher marginal um, propensity to consume. Right, but it is, uh, all the modern Keynesian models also recognize that consumption is, number one, not the only activity. There's investment. All the modern Keynesian models recognize you got to get the money from somebody, and that person's going to spend less. So the, the modern models don't have that, even though the economists who write the models talk about it. <laughs> we yeah. put them on TV or whatever in the newspaper, they talk about it. But it's not it's part of their research. Really, the closest thing that gets to the research is some of this empirical multiplier stuff where they'll look at the relation between government spending and employment or output. And then, and mostly that's analysis of wars or peacetime defense buildups. Right. Um, and they'll sign, well, when you pay guys to build tanks or you pay guys to, to march in the jungle, that makes the economy bigger. And I, they're probably right. But then they take this huge leap and say, well, instead of paying guys to build tanks, we pay them not to build anything. That'll also make the economy bigger. And that, that part is just, it's not the economists talking when they say that. But they do say it. Some, some, they do say it's, it. It, I hear it all the time. Um, and um, some of them have Nobel Prizes, so it is, um, it's a claim they'd like to make. Yeah, when I, when, I push them, when I push them on this, they will say, well, everyone else says it. When I ask them, show me the research, show me this, show me that, and they say, well, everyone else says it. Like the director of CBO told me that. I said, why are you using the multiplier for unemployment insurance? He said, well, that's Keynesian economics. That's, that's what he told me. Not that they did a study of some country that 
expanded its unemployment insurance and saw what a boom they enjoyed. Well, but the good uh, news, there's no such study. Yeah, the good news is I think the CBO has now increased their range for the multiplier to a, a factor of six. I think their bottom end to the top end, it used to be fourfold. Now I think it's sixfold. They've, they've used Valerie Ramey's uh, lower range estimates now for their bottom range, um, which is make the, makes the range even bigger. But uh, interested readers, uh, listeners can turn to, um, can listen to that Valerie Ramey episode we did. But to go back to your list, so again, you said unemployment compensation is number one. List some of the others. And then I want to raise the obvious question, which is, well, you know, unemployment compensation is not that generous. So you're suggesting that by extending it from 26 to 99 and then adding in the other things I'd like you to list, that then people just said, oh, I don't, I'd rather not work. So first list the, the, some of the other programs that expanded, not just in terms of the number of people. Obviously that might, as you mentioned many times in the book, that we understand that there's an endogeneity. There's a feedback loop there that affects total spending, but it's not just that more people are eligible. It's that what they got when they were on there got more generous. So talk about what other programs are relevant here. Yeah. Now all these things I'm mentioning there, I, I call them rule changes. Yeah. The changes in what the statutes say about how people should be treated, not you know, a different economy being filtered through a set of rules that have been there for a long time. So there, one of the rule changes was unemployment insurance going to 99 weeks. Another change was, um, or set of changes was in the food stamp program. There was a new set of rules in terms of who could be on the program, a more expansive set of rules. Now, in most states, um, they don't check whether you're genuinely poor. I mean, you could have lots of money in the bank, or you could own a yacht, um, and you can be on the SNAP program. The only thing they do is they check your income at the time that you apply, um, whether it be a quarter or a half a year or something like that. And so if you happen to be out of a job, you were maybe formally doing quite well, only nine months before, you can be on food stamps. Um, they you expanded said, the food stamp benefit. Um, the amount that each family on food stamp gets was expanded twice, um, once toward the end of 2008, and then again six months later. And roughly how big were those increases? They were, uh, in percentage terms, they were about um, 15% or so each, so a combination of, uh, on top of each other, maybe around 40% increase. That's a big, um, in- that's a huge increase. In percentage terms, now the dollar amounts in the programs are smaller, so... Um, the typical food stamp benefit is less than the typical unemployment benefit. Um, and so this would be one of those expansions that's more relevant for people who don't earn that much normally and um, be less relevant for someone. You know, so someone who's earning $75,000 a year wouldn't find the food stamp benefits to be all that significant. But at the low end, they're significant, um, and they expanded a lot. Um, they added on another thing they did was with the unemployment program, but not regarding the number of weeks, but they added on uh, a bonus, really. I think they call it a bonus. Uh, the official name was Federal Additional Compensation. They gave people 25 bucks a week. Uh, everyone who was on UI got their usual benefit plus a $25 uh, bonus. Another thing they did is they expanded uh, the number of people who could get UI, um, especially people who are weakly attached to the labor market under the old rules, they say, you know, you, you didn't even work that much before the recession came along. We can't give you benefits. They changed that. And they said, you know, as long as you had even a little little bit of work history, we'll uh, let you on the program. The um, federal government was involved in this. Lenders in general were involved with this. They gave breaks to people um, whose homes were underwater. I gave, gave them mortgage breaks but only if their incomes were low. So that that's another kind of set of help that you get if you spend part of the year or even all the year unemployed, you get some help on your mortgage, but if you continue to work like you were before the recession, forget about getting any of that help. Um, those would be the, uh, oh, they, another major one is they paid for unemployment, insur- uh, paid for the health insurance, 65% of the health insurance, for people who were laid off from their jobs. So that's a, a big type of relief. Um, never gets cited when they talk about the average unemployment benefit. Um, but 
you could have 65% of your health insurance paid for, you'd have to pay the other 35%. And two, two to two and a half million people took advantage of that uh, expansion. So you're, just to make it clear, you're somewhat, at least or maybe totally agnostic about whether this was a good idea or a bad idea, these changes. That's not the point of your book. Your point of your book is to say that when we assess the effectiveness of the labor market, as we come out of this recession and try to think about what we need to do to deal with it, you might want to take these things into account. Yeah, the book, uh, I think Milton Friedman called it a positive analysis. The book is about, well, what happened to the labor market and why? And let's figure that out first. And I'll contribute what I can. Um, you never solve every puzzle fully, but I'll contribute what I can in terms of the, the causal factors. Um, and then you, after that, you could ask how it would be different. And in, the, in this case, when you're talking about helping people who, who are poor or unemployed or both, um, there, there's a trade-off that economists have always recognized, politicians have recognized it even, that you can help people a lot. That'll make for some bad incentives or some inefficiencies, but you're helping people. Or you can hold back the help, and then people will suffer, but you'll have more efficiency and more incentives. And it's a trade-off. You gotta, you gotta pick one or the other. You, or degrees, or balance the two. And it's hard for me to sit, from that point of view, to sit here and say, well, okay, we, we rebalanced in the favor of more help and less efficiency. That was wrong. No, maybe the wrong, the balance before wasn't proper. Or maybe there were good reasons to rebalance, even if it were proper before. Um, so the main theme in the book is we we rebalanced in the direction of less efficiency and and more help and not judging it. Now, with that said, uh, that is the main message of the book. But in going through and studying the help, I do find some instances where the balancing was done very poorly. Um, instances where people um, would actually have to pay to go to work, where they're uh, in tax rate terms, their tax rate was above a hundred percent. I mean, that's a poor economist all recognized that to force somebody to pay to go to work rather than earn from working is no way to manage that balance. Um, it, it, it's terrible for, for incentives. It gives very little help given the amount of incentives it takes away. Um, it's demoralizing. The people find themselves in a trap that the more they work, the less they have. It, it, it's a terrible way to do it. I uncovered plenty of instances of that in my research, but still that's for a later book at a later time to say, okay, how could we have done the help better? Um, the first approximation, we helped more and maybe it was worth the inefficiencies we got. So you lay out in the book in much more detail, obviously, than we have time for here, the, the changes in the rules that we just, that you just summarized. Uh, a couple you did not mention, I just want to mention, I'm not sure you mentioned this in the book. Um, we had a, episode with David Otter, who points out that disability roles have expanded dramatically in recent years. And that's not, again, because necessarily because more people are disabled in the way we usually interpret the word, but that the legal system has gotten more, made it easier to, to establish disability. Again, if that might be a good thing, might be a bad thing, but certainly the rules of that game have changed. And for me, the I don't like the word efficiency in economics. I think it's a bad term that is misunderstood and sometimes misused. The, the real issue for me here is I don't, not so interested whether it's inefficient. I'm worried about what are the policy implications of the current level of unemployment and what should we do, do about it? We have people saying that because unemployment's still stubbornly high, we need to spend a trillion dollars more in public spending to somehow stimulate aggregate demand. So that's what I'm more, I'm more worried about the implications for, um, for, I, I think we should draw the right lessons, and that's what I think your book is, is provocative and interesting. But let me get to the question I raised at the end of the last question, which was, are these magnitudes plausible given how relatively ungenerous unemployment – so it's gotten more generous. Okay. Uh, that's made it easier for people to stay unemployed. Are you suggesting that – those magnet, you're not suggesting, you claim that those magnitudes are big enough to, to explain a big chunk of the changes in, in the amount of work people are doing. Um, make the case for that. Okay, but I, I, I think we got to break it down a little bit. Sure. Okay, first of all, take your time. Let's look before the recession and can we describe the programs as ungenerous? 
Okay. I'm not sure I jumped to that conclusion. It's not a crucial part of my book, but I, I, I don't want to adopt an incorrect description, yeah, yeah. even if it's not relevant. Um, typically before the recession, about unless you were well into the upper half of, of earnings, when you lost a job, you got half of your earnings replaced. So if you used to earn 600 a week, you get an unemployment check for 300 a week. And I guess you're referring to kind of that $300 number, saying $300 isn't very big. Okay, well, if you earn 600, I earn more than 600 myself, but if you earn 600, 300 is not all that trivial, number one. Number two. But it's only half. Okay, but let's get to number two. Yeah, go ahead. There's all kind of taxes you don't have to pay. True. When you're unemployed. Payroll taxes, forget about it. You don't pay them when you're unemployed. Um, big chunk of income taxes, you're not going to pay when you're unemployed. So when you put all that together, um, before the without even getting into food stamp help you might get from food stamps or Medicaid, put all together before the recession, about seventy percent, maybe a little more, of your earnings would be replaced, not half. And that's without getting into, like I said, other types of programs. And when you start with the 70% as your baseline and say you're going to get 70% health under the old rules, and you put a bunch of new rules in there and pushes the 70 up to 85 or 90, I don't think we can call that trivial anymore. I agree with, um, I think, I agree with you. I, I, my, I think the normal people, when they plan to retire, which is by all accounts a voluntary transaction, when people plan to retire, they embrace and accept that their income may go down by 20%. But it's okay, they're not working. Yeah. And they plan for that. The, the most studious, forward-looking planners say, I don't need the kind of income that I had when I'm working when I'm not working. I'll, a 10 or 20% pay cut is what I need. And with these expanded programs, we had people, lots of them, millions of them, who got less than 20% pay cuts. Meaning they made up, being laid off. Meaning they made 80% or more of what they had right. made before. And there were people... I point out in the book some of them, and I'm doing further research on this. There were people who actually had more to spend after they were laid off. That was not a typical situation, but still it numbers in the millions, um, a million or two. Um, so that's the first point. And the second point is, even if it were true that these were small amounts, there are, are always people on the margin of, of working or not. Um, we know that's a fact because before the recession, there was like 140 million people working and about 140 million adults not working. So there are a lot of people who weren't working before and a lot of people who were working and people going in between. There were people on that margin and people who are on that margin and you change what you pay them on one side of the fence, they're going to fall off the fence. And so what happened is benefits got more generous. You had 130 million people stay on the working side of the fence. And you had, depending on how you treat the, uh, the discouraged worker sort of issue, on the order of 10 million people fall on to the not working part of the fence. And so it was a minority, a small minority of the population that fell into the non working side of the fence on that point of view. So it's not a, you don't need a huge change in benefits to get 10% of the population or 8% of the population to change their behavior. But, but a counter argument to that would be that, well, they didn't have a choice. It's true that it was more attractive now to be unemployed than employed, but even if they wanted to work, the jobs just weren't out there. What's your response to that? Well, first of all, I think there was 200 and between, during the recession, the call of recession 2008, um, in 2009, um, there were 240 million people who started new jobs during that period. So there were lots of people starting new jobs. Now, it would have been better if it were more like 280 million, but I, I don't like this description of, that says there were no new jobs to be had. You know, tell that to the 240 million people who did start new jobs during that period. Some of those um, are more than once, presumably. Presumably, <laughs> some are more than So there are guys who... During the period when there were supposedly no jobs, who found a job twice? Okay, so that that 
the no jobs is, is a terrible description. So that's um, let me just what happened. let's just stop and talk about that for a minute because I think that's something that's often forgotten, uh, and I assume you're drawing that from the Jolts data. Right, that's Jolts. So Jolts is a BLS Bureau of Labor Statistic um, survey that's fairly new. It goes back before the recession, but you know, what it used to show when times are good, there are millions of jobs being being destroyed, even in low unemployment times, but there's just more than that number being created and the total employment number is increasing. What a recession is, is there's still millions of jobs being created. There's millions of jobs being destroyed, but during a recession, it's usually the case that the number being destroyed outweighs the number being created, but there's still millions being created. And that's, that's your point, right? There were millions being created. That's right. Yeah, which is Surprising and to there, most people. There were also millions, like you said, millions normally being destroyed, and there was an increase above that normal. But again, unemployment benefits have a lot to do with that. Uh, there's a, somehow a treatment that says, well, I'll consider the idea that people don't go back to work because of these benefits. But they never also consider that maybe the efforts that employers and employees have to hang on to the factory going. It's also say, related say to unemployment that, insurance. I, I lost you there, Casey. Say that again. Start. Start. There, there's start also the, there are workers and, uh, and employers and employees all the time considering should they continue this operation. We know that because, as you said, before the recession, there were lots of jobs that dissolved, that were destroyed, and that, that those considerations are always happening out there in the economy. And one of the things they consider is, well, how painful is it going to be to put this guy out on the street? And the more painful it is the more they do to take steps to try to avoid the layoff, maybe taking a wage cut, maybe working harder, whatever it may be, cutting the price that, that the product sold for. Um, they're looking at the painfulness of unemployment and doing that. And by making unemployment less painful, the government gave employers and employees less reason to retain the jobs that we already have. So I don't think it's an accident that we had a spike in layoffs in, in 2008. In fact, I think it would have been foolish for these those people to re- try to retain those jobs until the unemployment benefits and other programs got less generous, then you're going to put a guy out on the street at a point when there's less help. Um, it, it, the layoffs, I think, made a lot of sense from individual employer and employee points of view. It doesn't make it at a happy time. Um, you don't like to be in a spot where you even have to consider trying to um, resuscitate your job or your company. But when you're in that position, people are thinking about the cost and the benefits. So you're suggesting that employers uh, are compassionate, not just profit-seeking, that they are going to look at what alternatives there are to uh, when they're when their workers when they let workers go. And well, the the market relationship forces them to be compassionate. That um, take a simple example: that we we got a factory and that people are buying less and. They're thinking about maybe we should charge less for this product so we can keep the product moving. But we're going to need to have a wage cut to do that. And employees, you got to consult with employees. Employees, you want to go for that? You want to go for a wage cut so we can keep the factory going? And if they can already do that well when not working, they're going to say, no, I don't want you to cut my wage. All right, this gets back to the stickiness being an endogenous right. response to the policy changes, not some inherent given from heaven uh, reality of economic life. It's a very good point. I mean, it's a deep... And it's, it's not true. something I've invented in this book. Again, I draw on prior research. Economists have recognized this effect before. They've studied it, show some dramatic examples in, say, the fishing industry where the layoffs are very much a function of what's going on with unemployment insurance and, and the whole economy, too. Um, they studied it. They know there's that effect. Of course, they debate the magnitude of it, but it's it's a clear... The direction effect is clear. You um, help people more when they're not working, you're going to have more layoffs and slower returns to work. Now, what about the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, also uh, collects uh, data on quitting. And during the recession, there was a huge um, uh, drop in the quit rate. The data only goes back to 2000 that I could find at the BLS. So in the 2001 recession, there was a drop in the quit rate. People were less likely to quit their jobs. But there was a big or much bigger decrease, as you'd expect, uh, in this recession. Is that inconsistent with your claim? People are trying to keep their jobs. They're not so eager to quit. Well, no, in fact, 
it's part of the evidence in favor of my claim, really, that the first way of thinking about quits, um, I think of it, I think of it as a marriage type of situation or a boyfriend and girlfriend. And when they split up, sometimes it's not all that interesting to ask, well, did the boy break up with the girl or the girl break up with the boy? But that to quit is somehow implying an answer to that, that the employee broke up with the employer and a layoff is the opposite. And I'm not sure there's a, a lot of deep meaning in that. However, there is public policy meaning in it. Um, if the employee says, I'm the one who broke up with the employer, then he can forget about a lot of benefits. The unemployment insurance program will not help him if he says he's the one who initiated the breakup. On the other hand, if the employer steps forward and say, I initiated this breakup, that turns on a whole spigot of benefits for people. So it's no surprise to me that when we increased the spigot of benefits, we opened it wider, that more of these breakups were classified as layoffs, the employer initiating the breakup, than being classified as quits. Now, how does um, how does productivity play into your story? Because you have a very interesting claim. The claim's not the right word. Um, finding about utilization of other of other inputs during this recession, which I think is very provocative. Explain what's going on with capital and productivity over the course of this recession, and whether it's similar or different from those in the past. Yeah, there were a number of recessions historically, not all of them. Uh, Great Depression would be one, and there was a number of others, where productivity, output per worker, fell. That as people were, as the labor force was shrinking, the workforce was shrinking through due, layoff, due to layoffs, for example, output, what was produced, was shrinking even more. And so as a ratio, uh, output per worker fell. Uh, that's happened a lot of times. I can't say it happened in every prior recession. That wouldn't be correct, but it happened in a lot of recessions. It happened big time in the Great Depression. That didn't happen in this recession. Output fell somewhat, um, but it fell less than employment did. Output per worker went up during the recession, and as of the beginning of 2012, output per worker was still higher than it was before the recession, even above kind of a prior trend for output per worker. So what do you think's going on there? And that fits with the idea that employers perceive employees to be more expensive. Um, when they perceive employees to be more expensive, they're going to try to produce in ways that don't need employees. Um, using more capital, um, using it better, using it more wisely, using the management um, more intensively, um, whatever they can do to get by with less workers but still satisfy the customer. And so one of the early chapters in the book, I document these productivity changes and explain how on the employer side of things, they're acting like employees are more expensive. And then the rest of the book is, well, why are they more expensive? And redistribution is is the number one answer. Redistribution increases the cost of workers in a couple of ways. Some of the redistribution falls on employers, as with, say, the Obamacare uh, $2,000 levy per employee. Um, some of the redistribution goes directly to employees, but as I mentioned earlier, that makes them less willing to take wage cuts when the time comes that wage cuts are needed. Um, so employees are really more expensive for a variety of reasons, and the result is less labor and more productivity. Now, I don't remember in the book if you drill down to this level of, of microeconomics, but uh, one of the challenges is trying to deal with these, trying to measure these impacts given the diversity of both you know, the labor force, of the sectors of the economy. Uh, so let's turn to two issues that I think are, are relevant for that. One is, is that you would think that these effects would matter very dramatically depending on whether you're married or single and also on whether you have high income or low income. If you look at unemployment rates by education, uh, they're much higher on unemployment rates by, for low-skill workers. That's before the recession. 
they seem to increase more dramatically, uh, but it's not obvious that that's, you know, it's, it's hard to say. But your claim would be that the recovery, I, I think your claim would be that the recovery would be uh, seen more in the higher skill jobs than in the low skill jobs. That is, the the bounce back would be bigger for higher educated, higher skill workers than for lower educated, lower skill workers. And I'm not sure that's there in the data. Have you looked at that? And am I representing it correctly? Uh, I like how you described the theory um, that these program expansions, the safety net, was not does not impact everybody uniformly. Um, in particular, I mentioned the $25 a week bonus. If, if you're at the low skill, $25 a week is worth paying attention to. If you're a pretty high skill person who earns uh, 2000 a week, you know, what's the big deal about $25 a week? So that there's that effect. Um, oh, a lot of benefits are kind of proportional. Unemployment insurance is proportional right. over a range. Uh, a lot of these debt issues that, uh, Higher income people have more debt measured in dollars and therefore more to be forgiven. That's true. Um, so some of these things are proportional. I'm thinking of food stamps, though. Food stamps wouldn't be true. Um, right. Food stamps is a fixed dollar. So there's a mixture of it. And what I have uh, chapter six in the book starts to look at that. It's mostly a macro book, so I, I don't get into a lot of cross-sectional comparisons. But chapter six is about that. And then I had a an expansion on Chapter 6 in a paper that's uh, coming out in tax policy and the economy in a couple months. And there I broke down the population into 10 groups based on five skill groups from low to high skill and marital status. And I, I do kind of the same steps in the book. First I ask, what happened to, the cha- to their incentives due to these rules? Um, and sure enough, as you said, low-skilled people, for the most part, had bigger changes in their incentives um, although not totally, because there's a tendency for very low-skilled people to be able to be on the programs even when they're working. So it doesn't change their incentive to work. But for the most part, low-skilled people had bigger changes in incentives. And then unmarried people had significantly bigger changes in incentive because um, married people don't have access to a lot of these programs because they have the spouses Correct. probably by on their own putting the family above the poverty line. Right. And then the last chart uh, in that paper compares changes in labor market outcomes for these 10 groups and changes in their incentives for the 10 groups. And they line up very well. Um, unmarried people, and this this is also dealt, the unmarried part is dealt with in Chapter 6 quite a bit. Unmarried people had employment per capita or hours work per capita fall a lot more, about twice as much in the recession than for married people. Um, and I don't interpret that as difficulty in finding a job. I, I just don't. I don't think that employers look at the wedding finger and say, ah, you don't have a ring, I'm not going to hire you. If they did, it would be a good business to have of renting people rings to take on job interviews. But I think the real story is that uh, unmarried people are getting more help from the government than married people are. And married people are in a little bigger hurry to get back to work. The other micro issue that and disaggregation issue I would think about would be uh, sectoral differences. So if you look at this recession, it's particularly f- hammered uh, manufacturing and construction, which has led to some geographic differences that are very dramatic. Um, I, the recession was much harder in so-called sand states where construction business had been part of the, the boom. So we're talking about places like uh, Nevada, um, oh, let me correct that. Nevada for my Nevadan friends, uh, Arizona, Florida, um, Michigan, a non-sand state. But, uh, so unemployment was very concentrated in those, in those geog- geographical regions, those states. And if you look at the changes in employment in manufacturing and construction, it, it's a huge portion of the, of the job losses from the recession. Um, so how does your story fit in with that or if at all? Or is that relevant? And a lot of people would say that's uh, the source of the problem. It, we just need to get those sectors back. Everything will be fine. Well, it, it's relevant. I'm not sure I agree with your description. It, it, measured in percentage terms, uh, the percentage shrinkage of the construction industry was huge. The percentage shrinkage in a lot of manufacturing industries was huge. But the number of 
unemployed people came from those industries, their fraction of unemployed people who came from those industries is much smaller because those industries were not that large to begin with. Correct. Um, so I think obviously unemployment rates would be higher for our former uh, construction workers and the like. Um, but I think especially the, the slow recovery, you, you can't link it back to those industries so easily. Um, on the regional side, same thing on the regional side. There are differences by regions for sure, but there's an awful lot of unemployment that's not in, in Nevada. Correct. And moreover, the differences by region, I had a chapter, I think it's chapter six shows this as well. There are some differences between the sand states and the non-sand states in, in the labor market experiences, but it's nothing like the difference between uh, married and unmarried people or nothing like the difference between elderly people who didn't get much help from these program expansions and people who aren't elderly. So I think um, really the geographical differences fit my story pretty well in terms of um, how small they are compared to the safety net differences that you expect and you'd find. And then the third part of it would be that um, the safety net changes weren't the same everywhere. The debt That's true. issues, the, the debt overhang um, is a much bigger issue in a place like Nevada. And Nevada is full of people who, whether they realize it or not, I expect they do realize it, they, if they work, they're working for their banker. They're not going to get, their family's not going to get any of the proceeds of that. It's just going to go toward helping digging their loan a little bit further out from the bottom of the ocean. Um, so incentives, I'm afraid, are pretty bad in uh, Nevada, California, Arizona, uh, hopefully getting better. But they, these incentive changes weren't uniform geographically. And, of course, there are people who want to work for their banker because they think that's the honorable thing to do. They borrowed the money. Even though they're underwater, they want to pay it back. They don't want to have that hit to their credit rating. But, again, we're not – you're not claiming, and I wouldn't claim that that's everyone. It's just a question of, as you say, at the margin, meaning people who are sort of close to indifferent now might be pushed one direction or or the other. Right. Uh, One criticism your work's received is that, well, you know, this is – what about – Overseas, what about all the other countries that have had this horrible recession that that um, had slow recoveries? Did they experience the same changes in their safety net, or is there some, they, they the critics who point that out would say, "Oh, there's something else going on. You're you're missing the boat." How do you respond to that? Well, actually, we're, I'm working uh, working on an international study now. I, I'm only one guy who can work on one country at a time. You're so, so lazy, Casey. It, you're, 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 you're a slacker. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's definitely something that needs to be researched. I want to understand all the countries. Um, but, and the first thing I would do in looking at any other country is just as I did with America, would be look at what's, cha- what's changed with incentives. Um, and I don't believe the claim that incentives were constant in, in other countries. I, I, I know, for yet. example, that... I don't either. <laughs> the sales tax um, went up a lot in the UK um, and in Ireland. And sales tax is yet another um, thing that government policy that reduces the word to working. The reason you work is so you can buy stuff. But if when you go to the store, the government's going to take it, you know, what's the point of working? That, that, that's got to be factored in. And Somebody needs to do it. I, if someone else doesn't do it, I'll get to it. Um, and I'd want to look at that. The other thing I have looked at already, I looked on early on in the recession, was are the countries countries the same in terms of what happened to their labor market? They're not. The U.S. labor market contracted a lot more. Yeah. The, a lot of these commenters, uh, they point to U.S. GDP and compare it to European GDP. They're cherry-picking now. My theory is a theory about the labor market. My, my model is about what happens to employment. And then they don't want to look at the employment data. I mean, the employment situation in the United States was a lot different. You might say worse, but employment went down a lot more in the United States in 2008 and 2009 than it did. I'm not sure I was able to find any country where it went down, uh, any major country where it went down that much. So that would be the other thing that I never said that the entire situation we have right now is due to uh, the safety net. I said it's most of it. It's a big part of it. Um, so what I'd expect to see in the country data would be uh, the U.S. situation to be different to the degree that its safety net 
situation was different. And just to make a um, comment about this kind of criticism, I was, I, I'm, I think Fannie Mae and other government housing policy policies had something to do with the uh, housing boom and bust, maybe a lot to do with it, which in turn might have had something, maybe a lot to do with the recession. It's an interesting, it's a complicated question. You got monetary policy, you got all kinds of other things going on. You got the financial sector having trouble because of this. Um, but one of the, when you push the argument that it's caused by Fannie Mae, people say, well, what about the rest of the world? They don't, they don't have Fannie Mae. Well, that's true. They don't have something called Fannie Mae, but I'm Sure that a lot of other countries have increased the role of the government in encouraging home ownership. So it's an empirical question just to say, well, we don't have the other countries don't have Fannie Mae, therefore Fannie Mae has nothing to do with it is not a good argument. And similarly, people who reject your argument by saying, well, other people don't have a other countries don't have a SNAP program or 99 weeks. No, they had a very generous safety net before. I suspect in the face of a crisis, they probably through the same political forces that caused the changes here had similar changes there. And as you say, then it's an empirical question, but the magnitudes are plausible or not. But um, the idea that somehow your argument's clearly wrong because there are other countries that have problems is kind of a bad argument. Um, what about past recessions? Again, I know you don't have uh, – this This book, by the way, is a hu huge amount of empirical work, um, some of which you know involves a lot of aggregation that's not my favorite kind of empirical work, but a lot of it is just very careful measuring of uh, what these changes were, which is my kind of empirical work, and I, I salute you for it. And just as you don't have time to look at every country, you probably don't have time to look at every recession. But I would think one of the best tests of your claims would be to look at past recessions and to see how changes in the generosity of safety net or unemployment benefits uh, were changed during those recessions. Is that um, – have you looked at that? Have other people looked at it? Um, yes yes, and no. It's something I've thought about a lot and something I wanted to do um, – there's there's a big area macro that has, before the recession came along came out and said marginal tax rates do not change over the business cycle, um, and they kind of guided their research based on that claim. Whether well, the claim is wrong, it's just wrong. We we know that while we didn't go to 99 weeks in other recessions, we went to 52 weeks or 73 weeks and. So incentives did change over the business cycle, and you want to quantify that, and that's something that uh, needs to be done. Um, I think it would be great. I, I form a marginal tax rate series um, monthly for the years 2007 to 2011. I think it would be great to take that back 10 more years, 20 more years, 30 more years. Um, well, there is a puzzle in, in macroeconomics, which – which is that these last few recessions, the 91, 2001, and this one, seem to be different. Um, are they different because the safety net got more generous? Are they different because policy was different, or other kinds of policy, monetary policy? Are they different because of structural changes underlying the economy? Uh, that remains to be seen. So, And we may never settle it, but it would be very useful to get some more evidence on it. Yeah, I think it would be useful. I, I do have some hints about... Or I have some guesses that I'm going to pursue on that line, and that the the changes in the safety net are, are relevant, and we talked about those in the latest recession. But it also matters the backdrop onto which that those changes occur. If you, if you go from a 70 percent marginal tax rate to 90 percent, I think that's a lot bigger deal than going from 10 to 30. And I think the safety net has been getting bigger over the last 15 years. The food stamp program would be an example. It's been growing over about a 10-year time frame. The disability program that you mentioned has been expanding maybe over a 20-year time frame. So I think what's, our business cycle has been increasingly superimposed on a larger welfare state. And I think that may lead to different business cycle dynamics. Uh, that's kind of an educated guess right now, but that's something that should be looked at. Now, one of the things I particularly like in your book is uh, you do some sensitivity analysis, which I think is always a good idea. You, you look at possible ranges of labor market response to these changes in the rules. So you look at 
more elastic, less elastic, meaning more responsive, less responsive. And you have a nice chart where you show that, you know, among a, if, if you could debate whether it's a reasonable range, but you, t- you take what seems to be a reasonable range taken from the literature on responsiveness, and it's that range, bottom to top, is still quite a, far away from what actually happened, meaning you could attribute a lot of the changes to these rule changes and say that very well, but I, I hope, I hope listeners don't know what I meant. Um, I asked that because I mentioned the sensitivity because we're taping this in November of, uh, 2012. The so-called fiscal cliff is looming over us and there's potentially fairly large marginal tax rate increases coming either for everybody if they can't resolve it, if Congress and the president can't resolve it, or at least for the wealthiest Americans if uh, they somehow, com- if that's the compromise. And a lot of people argue that, uh, you know, Labor supply is not very elastic. It's not very responsive for high-income people. Nobody's going to stop working because their marginal tax rates are going to go up. In the 1950s, we had marginal tax rates of 70 and 90%. um, And people still worked hard and created stuff, and the economy was pretty good. So all these issues about responsiveness that are really what your book's about, those are overblown. They're not important. What's your reaction to that? Well, there, there, there's a few pieces to it, I think. One piece is that in my book and a lot of us in general have been looking at employment statistics. And employment statistics are, by construction, democratic. Everybody counts once. We don't count some people three times and other people a half a time. So One worker, one it, vote. One, one worker, one vote type of thing. And so if you want to understand employment statistics, you kind of got to understand what's happening to kind of everybody uh, or large groups of people. And that's why I looked at uh, a lot of these programs. Um, and something that's happening just to rich people, rich people are a small group. They're the 1% or the 2% or a half a percent or whatever they are. Their direct impact on the employment statistics can't be that big. Now, maybe there be indirect impacts you want to get to, but... It can't be that big. Now, the impacts on GDP of rich people could be very large, and the impacts on spending could be very large because spending and GDP are not democratic measures. People contribute to those in different proportions. So I I find that discussion kind of a little bit of switching gears. Um, Just because you have a policy that doesn't affect the employment rate very much because it hammers rich people doesn't mean it's not going to affect GDP and, and overall efficiency. Um, it's Fair enough, a but talk, talk different about this. measure of damage. Yeah, but let's talk about this elasticity issue. Do you do you really do you believe that if the if marginal tax rates went from say you know thirty five to forty, which is roughly the range we're talking about that's being talked about now, which is fifteen percent increase in marginal tax rates, it's a five percentage point increase, but it's roughly a fifteen percent increase in the in tax rates for the last dollar earned for high income people. Would you expect a a significant labor supply response from that group? Um, Especially given this claim that, you know, when they were 71% or 70% or 91%, people still worked hard. They worked full, they worked full time. I'd expect um, a significant response in the group of people impacted by such rate changes. I'm not sure we're going to see a five point change across the board. Right. Um, it'll be in specific groups. And I'd expect a significant response. Now, in my book, first of all, in my book, I don't take my personal beliefs on this responsiveness. I rely on the literature. I've done prior work, and I think that labor is pretty responsive or whatever, but I don't bring that to bear here. I draw on the literature, and I include in my range some, I think, ridiculously small, uh, Ridiculous, too extreme, but pretty darn small responsiveness to incentives. The main driver in my book is the reason why I get such big labor market changes is because the incentives change so much, not that the behavioral change per unit incentive change or per marginal tax rate point is is all that big. Um, so my opinion really doesn't come into the book that way. Also, the other thing I do in the book, I'm focused on the aggregates. You mentioned you didn't like aggregation, but we're all interested in these aggregate numbers, so we need to have aggregate incentives. And I cannot make a calculation that only applies to a certain small group. And it's not going to be, it's going to be at best a piece of the total. And so I've been over backwards to try to tell you how much marginal tax rates change 
on average, including everyone, including the people who's had no change or people whose marginal tax rates went down. And I find that on average, marginal tax rates went up, um, or at the median would be more accurate. At the median, I find that marginal tax rates went up by eight points from 40 to 48. That's a lot. It is. For an but, average change. But as you point out, sure. it's, it's zero for some people, and it's large for even larger than that for a lot of others. I just, my, my skepticism isn't over the, the underlying mechanism here. It's the trying to measure that across the whole economy without disaggregating seems to me to be a, a little bit of a heroic leap of faith. But, but I salute you for it. And I, particularly because of the, um, cultural aspects of your work. And I, we're, we're out of time. I just want to, I want to close on this. You know, what you're doing here is it's very ambitious. It might be true. Uh, evidence is always uncertain and truth is elusive in economics, but it's, it's a provocative idea that's very different from the standard views that you hear coming out of the macroeconomics profession. And, um, and most labor economists, I think, are ashamed to make these kind of arguments. They weren't ashamed when unemployment was 5%. They were happy to make them. But when they became 10%, everybody became a Keynesian. They all, every, all of a sudden, people were very eager to get behind increases in government spend. Almost everyone was eager to get behind increases in government spending. And they were equally eager to throw away all the incentive-based standard microeconomic, labor market, labor supply, labor economics literature that you're relying on. And you're not ashamed. And I think what you've done here is pretty courageous. And so I salute you for that. Uh, even though I'm not sure it's true, it's certainly provocative. And why don't you close by talking about some of the reactions you've gotten in the profession? Uh, maybe I'm exaggerating, but I think, um, I think this is a hard argument to put forward now, even though I think, uh, 10 years ago it would have been a piece relatively easy. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I should say the book is about the economy, not about economists. Um, but your last question is asked me about economists. And so I'll answer it. Um, not experts on what they feel and everything, but there, there, uh, I do sense what you said that there's, uh, it doesn't feel good to analyze labor supply and think about incentives of the unemployed, think about incentives for laying people off. Uh, it doesn't feel good, and so maybe that's why they don't do it. I don't. I don't know. Um, one reaction I've gotten from economists is it, when I show them this stuff, they say, "Boy, I didn't realize the sum total of all this." Right. I had heard about this program or that program, but I didn't. Now that you tell me, it makes sense. But I didn't realize that there was so many expansions happening, and the sum total could be so big. Sure, they may dispute with the details of my numbers. Uh, maybe I got it too small, but. They, uh, they say, yeah, we, somebody needs to do this. Somebody needs to think of the sum total of the government policy changes and how they affect people. You going to keep doing it? I think so. Um, I, you know, I mentioned that I think we want to look at prior recessions from this perspective. We want to look at other countries. The, the thing I've been working on when you called is the American, uh, the Affordable Care Act. That has another uh, another uh, f flavor, another um, image that you get looking at that as a bunch of apparently little changes that add up to big changes in incentives. Um, I, I don't have any numbers to give you right now, but they're big changes in incentives. Um, on the order of the changes that we saw, you see in my book, we saw in 2008 and 2009. And so... If I'm right about that, and I'm right that behavior depends on these incentives, we may see the labor market contracting uh, significantly in the next, uh, say, four-year time frame. Well, it's always good to quote F.A. Hayek, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. And when you talk about all the different small programs adding up and apparently uh, unintended consequences that you've uncovered, I think that's a very relevant thing to think about. Well, thanks, Russ. One thing I forgot to mention, but maybe if you have a web page, you can put it on there. I have the web page for the book. And one thing that's, that's available on that web page is spreadsheets with all my numbers. So if you think I made a wrong judgment here or there in doing the numbers, people can go in and, and tweak it. 
and come up with their own uh, answer. I, I'm very much in favor of somebody doing that. Um, I want to make it easy for the next guy to do it better. If I made a mistake, to do it better. Um, but I, I, I want to subsidize people considering incentives. My guest today has been Casey Mulligan. Casey, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Okay. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.